You're listening to 91.9 KCSB-FM. I'm Leica Sabres, Archives Coordinator for 91.9 KCSB-FM. This weekend, we're commemorating our 60th anniversary of people-powered radio. That's right, we have been on air for six total decades, and we'd love to celebrate it with you. In honor of 91.9 KCSB-FM's milestone anniversary, I spent some time chatting with KCSB's founder, Mr. Bill Harrison, where he tells me all about KCSB's most intimate historical moments. I even got the opportunity to ask him what he thinks of the station's development to date and its progression over the course of 60 years. He tells me that he's totally blown away by what KCSB has become. Tune into our conversation coming up shortly on 91.9 KCSB-FM. As a jumping off point, I asked what inspired him to want to start Radio Navajo or KCSB's original name while he was a student at UC Santa Barbara in 1962. Let's get right into it on KCSB-FM 91.9. This is your archives coordinator, Leica Sapers, with Mr. Bill Harrison. Thank you so much for meeting with me today. Once again, Mr. Harrison, I'm so stoked that you could be here with me today. I would love to just get right into things and ask, why, why radio? What prompted you to create kcsb or Radio Navajo, excuse me, during your time at UCLA. I'm going to be at the 60th anniversary coming up very mm-hmm. soon. And been thinking about what I might say if I were asked to give a talk there. And one of the words that kept coming up for me is serendipity, is how in my life at that time, particularly, but lots of times, things just kind of happen out of the left corner of your eye, so to speak. And if you go for them, then things happen. And so... Basically, this started for me. I had an interest in junior high in, in theater, especially technical theater, and did that a lot and was really into that. And then I discovered when I went to high school, Santa Barbara High School, that they had a class in radio that you could take instead of English. Mm-hmm. Well, at that time, something instead of English sounded like a good idea. And I was fascinated with the idea of radio. So I took that class. And as a result, we did a few programs in the studios of what was then KTMS radio down in the news press building. And that kind of got me started. And I wound up working in high school, both for KTMS, but also more at that time for KIST, which was another AM station downtown at that time. And I had already gotten involved working in commercial radio part time and really loved it and all that. So at the time I was... A sophomore, I lived at home my freshman year of college. As a sophomore, I got to move into the dorm. I had earned enough money the previous summer to pay the dorm fees and was also working for KTMS to do what was called the color and commercial for football broadcasts. And the Gauchos then had a football team. Mm -hmm. So I was involved in doing uh, some work on each of those games. And one of them was in Fresno. And it was in, I just looked it up the other day. It was sometime in September. I went to Fresno, took a friend with me from the dorm. And when you're in the press box in an away game, you meet the broadcasters that are local as well, who are there doing the same thing you are. So we spoke to uh, this fellow about what was then just kind of a offhand conversation about, wouldn't it be kind of neat to start a student radio station someday? He said, well, come come over and see me tomorrow at, at the station after we'd done the game the night before. And it turns out he gave us an old Army surplus field transmitter that he happened to have. 
because we happened to meet him and this all just fell into our laps. So we said, okay, we'll take it. We threw it in the back of the station wagon and brought it back to the campus. And as you suggest, I was living at that time in Navajo Hall as part of Anacapo Hall. And so we took it up and found with a couple of guys that were engineering students as well, that we could convert that to be a carrier current transmitter. And that was how we initially got the cue to go ahead and start something in the dorms with a radio station. And everybody in our, in our wing got pretty excited about it. We pulled together our tape recorders and our record players and whatever music we had and a microphone that we found and really cobbled together this little station feeding its signal into the dorm, which is what carrier current is. And um, that wound up being the start of it. Everybody pitched in and we ran, you know, a couple hours in the evening, something like that. Ran around the building seeing if anybody could hear it. The signal was a little weak, but we got through. And it just was one of those things that everybody was turned on about. <clears throat> what also happened to be the case, serendipitously, if you will, is the resident assistant of Navajo Hall was Joe Sorrentino. And Joe subsequently ran for president of the Associated Students and won. And so he had been in the middle of this big interest in student radio, in what we were then calling Radio Navajo, and became president of ASUA. And we approached him about moving the station into the uh, coverage of Associated Students and not just the dorm. Mm -hmm. And they all picked up on that and said yes. And we got some space over in a, one of the buildings associated with the Student Union, moved everything over there and became part of that operation. And so by the next uh, spring, we, we were we were KCSB. I have done a ton of research on that story and it, it never fails to amaze me how just intrepid all of you were in, in making the station. And I would love to hear a little bit more about your initial team. Who are you working with when you created the station in Anacapa Hall? Well, it was just, just guys that lived in the, in that area, in the dorm. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe eight or 10 of us that were principally involved in keeping things going, you know, in the evenings. We had a couple of people, like I said earlier, who were engineering students, and so they could help with that. I had some technical background, but not as much as was needed to retune that transmitter. One thing that's not in the records anywhere that might be of interest is the frequency. And I think it's KJ, is it KJUC that's now the alternative training station for yeah. KJ? That's on a frequency of 770 mm -hmm. kilohertz. So the reason I, I picked that frequency and the reason I picked that is that's one of the clear channel AM stations frequencies. And the closest radio station that had that frequency is KOB in Albuquerque. And I happened, I was a ham radio operator of a sort as a kid when I was in junior high. I was really interested in the FCC and knew a fair amount about how they were licensing stations and different things. So I thought that would be good because no way could we hear KOB in the Santa Barbara area, which means it wouldn't be interfering with what they're doing. We wouldn't interfere and vice versa. Mm -hmm. I spent a couple of evenings driving all over the foothills there in Galita Valley with my radio on in the car, trying to see if I could pick up KOB anywhere, just to make sure we weren't gonna be on the edge of a, a conflict. We weren't, so that's how the guys retuned that transmitter that was gifted to us 
to 770. And apparently, I looked it up the other day, and apparently 770 is still one of the frequencies being used. So your team was mostly a bunch of engineers, no one with a passion for radio and music. It seems like you were spearheading the theater, radio side of things. Well, I was certainly in, into it for the radio. I wasn't that big of a fan of a lot of popular music at, at the time, but many other people were. And uh, we had a fellow in the dorm, I think his name was Roy Hager, and he could sit down at the, at the piano down in the in the um, in the lobby of the dorm and start playing at six in the evening and still be playing something you know at ten at night. And he just played all the time, wow. so he was very into music and was a part of it. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about the first types of music that you were playing on the station? I know that there was a cultural vendetta against rock and roll at the time. Yeah, that was a little later when we actually got. KCSB going in several dorms and, and the thing was, and in the student union, the PA system of the student union was also part of our listening audience. And my concern had been to be pretty conservative about not upsetting the community and that sort of thing. And that rock was still considered a really new and outer edges sort of thing that wasn't real popular necessarily among the general population. And so to keep things from just becoming raucous, I was very much encouraging that we not play hard rock on the station. Now, I've learned since then that the rumors have been down through the years that all that I would allow anybody to play was classical music. Mm -hmm. That's not true. (laughs) All kinds of music was played. But it was, it was mainly just to keep from the hard rock stuff so that we wouldn't uh, give anybody any reason to get upset about students running a station. Now, one thing I'll, I will add while I think about it, at the time we were moving up beyond that first year or so and deciding this was really going to go somewhere, and we wanted to apply for an FM license, that had to be done through the regents because they're the entity that actually owns the university and would be the licensee. So I spent some time on the phone helping the regents lawyers in Berkeley prepare the license application before I left the campus to transfer to Michigan State University for actual degrees in broadcasting, which is what I did. Mm-hmm. Um, the At the same time, this is just hearsay. I don't have a record of this. But UCLA also wanted the Regents to allow them to apply for a station, and they were declined. And I think it was because the UCSB campus is far enough out of town that a 10-watt low-power educational license station wouldn't really even reach into Santa Barbara. So there was no likelihood of conflict coming up between the community and students running a radio station on their own. But UCLA, of course, is right in the middle of Westwood and the whole L.A. basin, and and they were declined. And I looked this up the other day, and apparently UCLA does have a radio station claiming to start about the same time, but it's only an AM station. I know that we are the first UC station, so that's very impressive. And I'm, as far as I know as well, UCLA only has an AM station. So, but based on what you were saying... I assume no outwardly heinous interactions with the FCC. It was just you backing the regents in your application to FM Air. 
No, I had I had a ham license, in, like I said, in junior high, so I had some connection with the FCC personally. But in terms of this station, no, it was all done when it, when it came time to really pursue this. Dr. Cheadle, the chancellor, was very very supportive of us and wanted to help see this happen. And I know he put in a good word up and down the the line of authority uh, to help us get this approved. Mm-hmm. But I personally didn't. I don't. I don't know that there was any resistance because the the low power ten watt licenses for educational FM was a relatively new thing with the FCC at that time, and we fit the bill perfectly for what they had created that for. So I think it went fine. Now, what to to finish that story out? What really amused me and pleased me was when last year, after of course KCSB has increased its power and coverage over these years by a lot. And it won the Santa Barbara Independence Best Radio Station of Santa Barbara. Mm-hmm. And that was a nice coda to the earlier issues, not to upset Santa Barbara by having a student radio station hearable in Santa Barbara. <laughs> it turned out that it does quite well. I was a speech and drama major most of the time I was there. I changed to engineering thinking that was electronics. And then I found it was really just math in a different form. And, and that wasn't... <laughs> One of my one of my two D grades was calculus. So I didn't do well now. I went back to speech and drama, which would have altogether required me a total of five years to finish because of various things. So I decided instead to go ahead and move to Michigan State and finish my undergraduate there in broadcasting and then go on in, uh, into their master's program, which was the real interest I had in being there. Did you keep in touch with the station while you were continuing? Oh, no, I didn't. One of the things that happened was, while the chancellor was very supportive, and, and Dr. Joe Saevitz in the College of Engineering was very willing to be our faculty advisor for the for the group, the speech and drama department, of which I was a student, was very unsupportive, basically, uh, or just passive. But one particular faculty member told me, said, you're just wasting your time. It will all die as soon as you leave, you know, you... You don't, you don't need to be doing this. And this was, of course, I was quite of the opposite opinion. We were going to make this thing last. Mm-hmm. And, but it was discouraging to have you know, no, no real support from the faculty that you would most suspect in the speech department would, might find this of interest. Mm-hmm. But we, we, we carried on nevertheless. One of the things that I wanted to include too is that in order to... I had, I had learned somehow that student activities like this often wind up with a lot of people who are very passionate about it and very involved with it. They wind up flunking out of school because they put all their time and attention into that activity and don't go to class or don't do their homework. And, you know, it just, it just doesn't work. So I took on, made a couple of decisions and I have no idea how long they lasted after I left. But the first one was that, we've set up daily managers for the station so that there was one person in charge of whatever was going on on Monday and on Tuesday and so on during the week. And they could be responsible for, you know, overseeing the programming that was going on and people, you know, what they were doing, but we're told to stay out of the station the rest of the week, only show up on your day. Your primary job here is to be a student. 
And that was emphasized a lot with people. But I had probably 150 kids working on this thing. So there was a tremendous amount of interest, a lot of activity, and certainly enough people to spread the work around. So we didn't have just two or three people who were trying to keep it alive and, and you know, winding up uh, out of school. The other thing that we did, because we were not a year-round operation at that time, so things would shut down during the summer, and I chose to make our positions of news director and music director, whatever whatever things we had in there as, as positions on the staff, that they would start in January and be good for a year and therefore have a transition, smooth transition into the fall semester with a staff that already had at least six months experience and knew what they were doing. And so it would be able to pick up and run again relatively easy as opposed to the usual pattern of starting anew each fall and you know having people take on new assignments and that sort of thing. It seemed to work for the time I was there. How long that was continued, I have no idea. But that was the purpose, was to make sure we could maintain the continuity, even though we were just a few hours a day and, and only during the school year. That's very impressive that you garnered that much interest. You said you had 150 people working at the station by the I time think so. Left. Who had expressed wow. interest, who had, you know, had some, so we, we even had big, I think they had over in the basket, whatever the gym was where the basketball games were played, they would do a thing in the fall for student activities, and it's kind of like a job fair. People could sign up for clubs and activities and things like that, and so we had a booth over there, and tremendous amount of interest in it. People came, and we, we couldn't even use really everybody who wanted to be part of it. Do you think the interest was because of the novelty of the station or was it just this raw interest in being heard, being broadcast and just being on air? Well, I'd put those two together. I think for students coming into a university environment, the idea of being on air and involved in a radio station was novelty, mm -hmm. was a novel thing for them. There weren't that many radio stations in, in the early 60s anyway, and there was certainly no internet. There was no none of these other kinds of things. So, so yes, it was a fairly novel kind of opportunity. When we talk about the way that you left the station, you obviously left it in very good hands with 150 people, 150 plus people interested. Did you maintain the friendships that you made at the station as you moved on to other endeavors, or? Like you said before, were you just not not monitoring at all from afar, checking in, or are you just doing your own thing? Well, one of the girls that was working on the station later became my wife. So, yes, there was some maintaining there. She later went on to graduate school at Cornell, and I was at Michigan State, and after that, we got married. But Rich Govey, who was the manager who took over after I did, I was in touch with over the years. He was a good friend. But I don't recall too many others that I on any kind of routine basis kept in touch with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Once you're, once you're moving across the, the country, it seems like it would be difficult. When I went to Michigan State, I got a four point the first year I was there and almost a four point the rest of my undergraduate years because I was basically taking courses and things I'd already learned. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and also as a result of that, and it was a good thing I chose to move to finish my undergraduate work because that got me known to the faculty and I got a teaching assistantship then for the master's program. Mm -hmm. So I was, uh, was a teaching assistantship for, for that was a one-year master's program. And I also worked as a master control director in the television station at, at Michigan State. 
as well as on their radio station. And all that wound up in my applying for a job at Ithaca College in upstate New York, where my then wife was going to school at Cornell. And they had a TV radio apartment at Ithaca. And I walked in having come from this very top school of Michigan State with a teaching assistant under my belt and was hired almost immediately and taught there for four years in TV radio. So one thing led to another. Often, you know, serendipity keeps coming to mind. Just, well, well, let me try that. Let's see what happens. And a whole lot of, I won't go into what's happened after that, but I've had a very, very good career for all this time. And obviously you've been very successful over the course of your career, but do you have any regrets about leaving KCSB and UCSB? Oh, no. Um, Not really. No, I think it was it was a good time for me. I I set things in motion. I went off to what for me was a much better schooling situation and also was out of town. So I was, you know, it's my first really moving away from my home community. I was about to ask, was it tough to leave home? Was it tough to make those transitions? No. Uh-uh. Yeah, I feel you on that one. I'm from the East Coast, so it was not difficult for me at all to start living in California because it's beautiful here but anyway knowing that you created such this big cultural thing in right smack dab in the middle of UCSB I was wondering if you could touch on KCSB's cultural impact on UCSB slash IV community including the JFK shooting the bank burning its closing and stuff like that what impact do you think that the station had on the UCSB community after you sowed the seeds and you left KCSB all set up for its subsequent success over the years? Well, the first thing you mentioned and that I was there for was when the Kennedy assassination happened. Mm -hmm. And at that time we had coverage, I think we had carrier current transmitters in three dorms plus the PA system in the student union. So that's not a lot of coverage, but it's a, it's a significant amount. And at that time, remember, this is 62, I think, or 63, when Kennedy was assassinated. I forget which year it was. Um, but there was, no, there was no texting. There was no cell phones. There was no internet. There was only standard telephones with a communication system available or broadcast. Mm-hmm. And when the Kennedy assassination happened, we got on that as much as we could. And that included the fact that I was still then working for KTMS and their transmitters are those two towers that are right near the campus out there. They used to have a transmitting programming operation out there a little bit as well. And they had a teletype. And I had a motor scooter at the time. So I would hop on my motor scooter, drive across to the KTMS transmitters, take wire copy off the UPI teletype, run back to the station. And so within a few minutes, we had essentially live copy on the assassination program, information that was coming coming out. And that was also, that was important to the campus because that was the week before final exams for the most part. And so everything was in disarray in regard to schedule of events, of classes, of exams, and all of that. And we were able to provide a fair amount of information to the campus community about these changes that were being being made there because of the response to the assassination. And ever since then, we all, when we would talk to each other and 
look back on things, we'd say that that was what put us on the map. I think that's when the university took us seriously, when the chancellor was real happy with how we had done things. And when people said, you know, this is significant, this is important. That's the, of those events you mentioned, that's the only one when, that happened when I was still there. Mm -hmm. the, the bank and all that, which I've heard about, talked to people about, happened quite a bit after that. What I've heard and heard some of the recordings and documentaries that people have put together about that uh, impressed me a lot of how much people picked up and ran with the energy and the commitment that we'd started with to reach in using phones and however they could to cover things in Isla Vista when everything was going crazy over there. I later heard about, in, in retrospect, not, not live at the time, about the whole bank burning and and the other relative, related things that happened in Isla Vista for that year or two when that was all going on. Mm -hmm. And um, particularly some, some one of the KCSB members did a documentary later about that with some audio from that time and described the story and so on. And I found it fascinating. I found I was grateful to know that this had occurred as an extension of what we were trying to establish there. I wasn't surprised about it at all, but very pleased about it. Was that where you envisioned KCSB being at that point in time in terms of interaction with the community and cultural significance? I don't know that I imagine anything like that. That, that, was, that reminds me of another. No, I didn't, I didn't imagine that happening. But when I knew it happened, I said, well, that, that fits. And of course, Isla Vista being is essentially the extension of the campus in so many ways that things going on there would be involved in what the radio station was doing. What I have said, and we'll back up and say here, is people talk about the 60s. For the most part, they're thinking about the later 60s. They're thinking about the, the reactions that went on to Vietnam and to many other things that were going on. The early 60s, when the station first started, were still a very, you know, mild, predictable, pleasant kind of time that I describe as sort of extension of the Eisenhower years. Mm -hmm. my, my growing up schooling was all in the 50s. And, you know, things were pretty mellow and, and going along pretty well at that point. And that continued on into 64, 65, I think, before other things started to happen that people now attribute to being the 60s. And the bank burning and all that was when that was really starting. Just to summarize the 60s, are this era that people tend to group together with all these radical events that happened in Isla Vista is what you were saying? Yeah, and the, and the whole country. Yeah, no, I, I definitely see that. When I'm paging through Ivy history, there's a lot of stuff happening between 1960 and 1975-ish, including the JFK shooting, the bank burning, and stuff like that. I was wondering if you could also touch on KCSB's shutdown after the bank burning. I know you weren't there. Well, I have read about that and heard about that. And of course, the interesting thing is that that shutdown was totally illegal. The cops had no right to do that. But then that was Santa Barbara County Sheriff's at that time. And, you know, sometimes they get a little independent in their thinking. Oh, yeah. But I do know that it was relatively short-lived, but I know that it was all challenged and the thing got put back on the air fairly quickly. Mm -hmm. I know the university in general came, went to bat to make sure the station was allowed to return to the air. I don't know how much Dr. Cheadle had to do with that, but I would expect if he were around, he was right in the middle of it. Oh, yeah. And that's an interesting 360 from when you were initially starting the station and all of the faculty didn't give you the time of day. 
No. They're just everyone is out here campaigning for free speech and this radio station to exist in, in the face of something as powerful or seemingly powerful as the law. So that's that's super cool. That is really yeah. cool stuff. But um, in terms of interaction with other radio stations, I know that you mentioned UCLA and getting familiar with their station and their their AM radio waves. But I wanted to know how you established those connections during the time that you were there and also later on in your life with efforts regarding UCRN, PCRN, and just ideas to make KCSB something that is bigger than, than its extent on campus. Well, we did two things while I was still there that were along those lines. We put together, uh, I think it was called Collegiate Broadcasters Conference or something like that. And we, we teamed up with Pomona College and their FM station and staff at that time. One of our staff members at KCSB had a brother who was the manager of the student radio station at Pomona College. And through that personal connection, we talked about how it would be, and we knew other campuses were interested in, in having radio or did have it and wanted to do more with it. And so we established this weekend conference at Pomona College. We put together the program content. Uh, Pomona College actually hosted the physical facilities of, of it on their campus. And we, had two people I can remember we brought in. One, Bob Crane was then a radio announcer on, I believe it was KNX or KFI, one of those two in Los Angeles. And he was pretty well known, certainly as a disc jockey at that point. He he hadn't become known on television as much as he was later. But he's a funny guy. And uh, my roommate and I, who was also working at the station, Shelly Berkovich, we drove to LA. We went to KNX and we just showed up in his office and asked him if he would come and talk at our student uh, radio station conference at Pomona College. And he said, sure. So he did. And we had him there. We also had a person whose name I cannot remember, who was one of the leading people in the Pacifica station in Los Angeles. And he came and also spoke to the students at this conference. And then we had other kinds of breakouts with people just talking about their own plans. And I I don't remember all the other details, but those were the key things. Now, somewhere in there also, we started the the Cal Student Radio Network. And at that time, the telephone system, my dad worked for the phone company, and I, I grew up knowing this. All the phone equipment was owned by the phone company. Nobody took anything apart or messed with anything. But we also knew that the university had two tie lines that could be dialed up to connect between the campuses, but they shut them down at night. So in some way we managed to, number one, take our telephones apart so that we could feed programming and and hear programming through the telephone lines and got that hooked into the tie lines to the other campuses. And we had, I don't remember how many times we did this and it may not have been very many, but we had uh, network feeds between Stanford and Cal and Pomona. And I think UC San Diego had something going uh, and and maybe some others, but we would do an hour or so of exchange programming on the system using these uh, 
telephone company timelines with nobody's permission. We just did it. That was how outrageously illegal we were. We simply took clips, clips weird, uh, wires out of the telephone leads and, and went about our way of doing things. That's really cool. Do you think you... So those were two, those were two things that, that involved interacting with other, other candidates. Oh, the third thing was, we also had somebody on our staff whose father was the administrator of a national program for collegiate broadcasters. And I can't remember the name of it. I do know that they were headquartered in Pennsylvania somewhere, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, I think. And I don't recall her name, but she contacted her father. And somehow, I think it was through that, I got invited to attend in New York, a collegiate radio broadcasters conference that was put on for about three days. And there were students there from all over the country involved in, in radio stations, similar to what we were doing. And I got to, that was the first time I've flown on a commercial airline plane from uh, Los Angeles to uh, New York. Mm -hmm. And um, I had an uncle who lived in New York who uh, took me around and toured me and so on as well. So it was, it was a fun trip. I don't remember what I learned, but what I do know is that I had one of the very earliest portable uh, audio tape recorders and I got, and Buddy Hackett was speaking at this conference. And I got Buddy Hackett to record a promo for KCSB. And I have no idea what happened to it or where it is. It may still be in the archive somewhere. <laughs> but that was one of, the, one of the fun things I did. So Buddy Hackett did a, a piece for KCSB at one time. I'll have to look for that. But the archives collection we have here is pretty intimidating. I mean, 60 years of all types of mini discs and CDs and open reels. It's tough to go through for sure. I'll, I'll bet. Mm -hmm. And, and one of the unfortunate things for me is I have no recordings of my own work on air anywhere <laughs> at, at KIST or KTMS or at, at KCSB. I didn't do a lot myself actually on air at KCSB. I was more busy just trying to make the thing happen from, from the management point, point of view. But in terms of broadcasting, not, not a lot going on there. You? No, I, I didn't do much on the air myself. Mm -hmm. I definitely see that when you're when you're <laughs> as involved with making this radio station become something important for the culture of the school, then I yeah. don't see you having time to be on air. And you know, too, also I think in, in a lot of other stations, there was a student radio station in a dorm there at uh, Michigan State when I went. Mm -hmm. And what I, what I see happening is somebody gets involved because they want to do a radio program. Mm -hmm. That was their thing because they wanted, they had music they liked or something like that. And so they would spend a lot of time, you know, being at the center of things, but not necessarily doing the work it took to make a structure and a system that would sustain. So what measures did you implement at KCSB to make sure that it would sustain? Because I know that you said that it got a lot of criticism that once you left, once everybody graduated, KCSB would no longer exist. So what were you doing to prove them wrong? I think we were real clear that what, what our role was supposed to be, what our purpose was in terms of being information center for the campus. Mm -hmm. And a sense of responsibility, I had had enough uh, connection or awareness of FCC and broadcasting protocols and so on that I, I, you know, I had been in an environment where the station and what it did and how it belonged to the community, what its responsibilities were in terms of being able to be relicensed mm 
every three years mm-hmm. uh, that I was was fairly familiar with. And somehow it was just in me to make something that would work and last and have a, have a purpose and people could belong to and feel good about it. And not just be run of the mill, do whatever you want, carte blanche, you know, where people didn't have a sense of a larger responsibility. And looking at the station today, was this was this where you envisioned it being in terms of creating this larger responsibility and everybody in their respective roles putting in the effort that it takes to run am, a radio station? I am totally blown away with what has become KCSBFM. When I look at the, well, number one, the fact that, that not only did it get its FM license, but then it wound up increasing power. It's now covering three counties. Mm-hmm. 24-7. I listen to it streaming, you know, once in a while, as anybody in the world can now. I mean, that was totally unimaginable at that time. Just to having it, having it last and be, in, be an existing entity for the campus was about the most I could have possibly imagined. But when I look at the, at the news operation, when I look at the emails that go out about the COVID stuff that, that you all have been sending out mm-hmm. a couple of times a week, programs and, and uh, conferences that are sponsored in town, things that have been done at the Lobero Theater that, that KCSB had something to do with making happen. That's all way beyond anything I imagined that we could become. When you heard about the movement of the transmitter to broadcast peak and 24-hour programming where you were you like wow this is this is my brainchild and it's it's progressed to this incredible level i i imagine you would be super proud oh yeah definitely (laughs) and it certainly wasn't anything i had imagined would would go that far i had worked one of my jobs (laughs) while i was going to school was working for a company called musicraft which did all the music distribution for the counties Mm -hmm. for all three counties actually and they were sending out their signal on um, a special subcarrier of another FM station that had its transmitter up on TV Peak. And so I was aware that FM stations were broadcasting from TV Peak, but the idea that KCSB would ever be up there never occurred to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it must be absolutely wild seeing seeing this whole station that you created. Yeah. 60 years from its inception and it's become this huge thing and and having a whole team and a team of programmers and reporters could you touch on kcsb news and the beginning of that on the news i don't recall that we we did a whole lot probably as i say as i said earlier the uh, kennedy assassination put us into that news reporting urgent kind of this is this people need to know about sort of thing Probably up to then, news that would come from there would have been just local campus stuff, activities that were going on, who won the who won the game that week, and that sort of thing. Because mm-hmm. I know that the station began as a way to send out PSAs regarding campus activities and stuff like that. So that's I feel like that is in and of itself a microcosm of the KCSB news that we do have today. So yeah, creating a, a whole entire KCSB news department was that was that something that you had envisioned initially no i think we probably had a news a news director person who would just make sure that it happened but uh, the, that there would be a whole department and that it would have its own s- substructure and mm-hmm. all the things that are, that are going on that was probably beyond what i could imagine i think just making it happen and keeping it going 
at the time was, you know, really on my mind. One thing I've noticed about myself is that whenever I'm going clear back to school, when I was in a job, and I've always had jobs I enjoyed, number one. Mm -hmm. uh, and I could not imagine not being doing that job for hours. Just what was going on then was what my life was. And so what was going on then with KCSB was getting the things handled with that that little tiny bit of space that we got there behind this student union. I don't know if you've ever looked at that or not, but if you go around, there's a fairly long building that's, well, I don't know if it's still there. It was there 10 years ago when I came for the 50th reunion. And you walk around the back of the building and there's, it's just storerooms and stuff like that. And then there's one place where it's got a real small window. And that was the window into our control room that we had at that time. But we had one room we were given, we divided it into two. And I mean, we literally, we, we were the carpenters, we did the, the, all the work. And the initial soundproofing for the control room was egg cartons. I'm looking behind you there, you have that nice stuff up on the wall to absorb sound and vibration. Well, we, we didn't have any budget for that sort of thing, but somehow a couple of guys and I, and I forget who it was, but we went over to the dining common loading dock one night after everything was closed down and found they had, the dining commons got delivery of eggs in these big boxes that had 30 eggs per tray. And they had these things that looked a lot like that stuff on the wall behind you to, to put all the eggs in and put them in a box. And then they would, when that was all empty, they put them back out on the loading dock to be trashed. Well, we went over and lifted uh, a whole lot of egg cartons, dividers, and stapled them to the walls in our control room, and that became our soundproofing. Doing things like that, hooking, hooking up wires to the phone so we could do the Alcal network, um, those were the things we did. And, and of course, the guys that scrambled around through the tunnels, they figured out ways to get into the utility tunnels under the dorms to string our wires for take our signal to the transmitters in the different dorms. That was all kind of midnight requisitioning sort of stuff. They got they wouldn't figure out how to get in and I don't know how they did. I didn't want to know. Just, just go do it. Yeah. As long as they did it, that's all that matters. <laughs> they got it done. Mm -hmm. And obviously it worked. We also had support. I, sh I should mention that Joe Bennis was the manager of KTMS and he was one of my um, people who supported me in lots of ways, both with the job there and in other kinds of ways. And he came out and gave talks to our staff a couple of times about the, the responsibilities and the opportunities of broadcasting. I had known about Jack Mosley of Mosley Associates mm -hmm. through my work in, in broadcasting in Santa Barbara, become aware of him. And he's the fellow who, his company produced various technologies that related to broadcasting, monitoring, and so on. And he came up with the first FM transmitter that he gifted to KCSB when the time came when they finally got licensed. So there was a lot of support. There was community support through me in, in large part, but also because it was the university, there were people who were certainly willing to step up and help out. So it just all around, you know, I, I used the word serendipity early on. It seems whenever we showed up, whenever we asked a question, things fell into place in ways that we wouldn't necessarily have predicted. Actually, it was somewhat serendipitous that I wound up going to Michigan State in that a, a student who lived in Santa Barbara, who was going to Michigan State, was working for some company one summer out on the campus pulling wires for who knows what. And he and I met and got to talking and that's how I learned about the TV radio program at Michigan State and why I 
I ultimately moved back there. It was just a happenstance meeting some guy who climbed up out of a manhole there on the campus. So in closing out the interview, do you, do you have any advice for us at the station? Currently, I know you're going to be back in less than a week for the 60th, but do you have any advice for us as of now? Well, I can only imagine that there is a strong core of principles and policies and attitudes that are established for the staff there. There are boundaries, there are encouragements, there, there's a whole culture in the station itself that's evolved over all these years. Absolutely. That seems to be working <laughs> for sure. And the key thing will be to maintain that and keep people involved. I can't imagine it not continuing to thrive as it's gone this far and this and, and gone this well. So I just uh, hope it continues. Is there anything else you'd like to add before I close out the interview? All the great things that I've been able to do in my career, I still find that when I think back, as I have lately, about the, my two or three years there of, at KCSB, at, at UCSB and starting KCSB, I'm still a very prominent, exciting part of my life that I value very much. Mm-hmm. It's, it's awesome that you still feel that way about the station. Like this is oh, this yeah. wild here and look at how incredible it's become. And I'm sure, I'm sure you're incredibly proud as you should be. On my 40th birthday, I was at a retreat in Santa Barbara. I uh, spent a week with Gene Houston out in Montecito at a retreat out there, which was a great experience. And then after that, I wanted to drive around to places I'd lived and just kind of check in around the Santa Barbara community to touch back to points in my life. And I decided to go see what the radio station looked like. And by that time, it was, Stork Tower was brand new, I think, and it was just, it was there. And I found it. And my intention was not to walk in with a, hi, you know, I'm Bill, you know, I'm the guy that started this thing. I just walked in and it was a weekday afternoon and people were busy and coming and going in the station. I stood there for a bit and somebody politely said, you know, can I help you? And I said, yeah, I'm. I said my name, but that's all. And then I used to work on the station years ago and I'm back visiting and just wanted to see what the station looked like in this new place. And this fellow turned out to be the current manager. So I walked in the station and as we were walking toward the, into the back room, the fellow stopped right, right as he was walking door, he stopped and turned around. He said, you're the guy that started this station, aren't you? I said, yeah. And well, he was excited that I showed up. And he went and found, among other things, uh, the piece of paper that was our first budget for the station of $930 for the year from the Associated Students. Mm-hmm. The, that was the budget for the first year of KCSB. And so he showed me around and talked about it. But that was fun. And he, so he gave me the shirt. He said, well, here, you need to have one of these. And that's an awesome shirt, too. I was admiring it when you first yeah. came on was... the interview. I don't think I've ever seen that KCSB shirt before. This says 92, but I'm, that's a little confusing to me because I think I was 82 that I was there. But in any case, yeah, it's a great show. Obviously, I haven't worn it out. It's just hanging in the closet all this time, but I'll probably take it with me this weekend. Yeah, I hope so. I, I hope so. And I'm, I'm really excited to see you there and meet you in person, Mr. Harrison. And thank you so much for interviewing with me today. It was a pleasure speaking to you.